Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, welcome everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tom. Uh, I'm part of the uh, City Reach Marion Church, uh, which we planted earlier this year. Um, Things are going fantastic down there, uh, and it's always a privilege coming out here. Um, I was actually thinking before, it seems a little bit sad, but heading out this side of town is actually a bit of an adventure for me. I feel like I get let out of the, the southern area of Adelaide, and it's a new city, so it's very special to be here. Um, before I open up the word, I'm just going to pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you uh, that we can gather here and that we can worship your great and mighty name. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you would speak to us tonight. Father, I pray that you would use uh, my words as inadequate as they are and uh, use them to penetrate our hearts and bring conviction where it is necessary. And would you, uh, Holy Spirit, draw us deeper into your presence and give us a clearer picture of Jesus Christ Christ in all of his glory and majesty, and may that propel us deeper to the foot of the cross and give us a true sense of joy and adoration at your name. And so we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I grew up um, in a very secular environment. I actually grew up in Canberra, and uh, I'd never actually been exposed to Christianity or really any other religion at all for the first 22 years of my life. Uh, And it wasn't until uh, I was 22, as I said, when I had my first real uh, encounter with Christians. It's very uh, confronting and unusual and weird. It actually happened because um, I had this odd urge to head down to the local church. Uh, No one ever invited me. Um, Looking back now, I realise that God was probably working in my heart, but out of nowhere I had this desire to head down to a church and uh, find out about uh, this idea of Christianity. And so as I responded to this new desire, um, I um, really just wanted to find out, first of all, whether there was a God, and then what it meant for me, whether there was actually purpose and meaning to life. And the real difficult thing for me was that the thought of uh, Christianity and attending a church was just such a foreign concept to me. Uh, I really didn't understand a lot about Christianity. And to be honest, all of my assumptions were based off Hollywood movies and The Simpsons, really. That was um, quite honestly how I viewed Christianity. So I I'd analysed the behaviour of Reverend Lovejoy and Ned Flanders from The Simpsons and after contemplating that for a while, I I knew that there was surely going to be an element of rules and do's and don'ts and abstaining from things. I thought that's what Christianity was all about. And so when I first started attending a church, um, as I had this growing curiosity in Jesus Christ, I started to ask questions of people, and I, I, I remember asking one of my friends there if I could still drink. I'd come from a background of uh, very heavy drinking, uh, a lot of binge drinking, and um, that had slowly started to fall out of my life. But I still had the question: Well, is alcohol okay? 
am I allowed to drink at all? Um, at the time, I was boxing, and I remember asking the question, am I still allowed to fight? In a controlled environment, of course, because you know the idea of punching someone in the face didn't really seem like a Christian thing to do. And so I had all of these weird uh, questions, um, just assuming that, well, I have to fit into this kind of mold, this sort of moral code. And this is uh, the question that we're really dealing with tonight. At the time, I thought there was a whole bunch of things in my life that I'm going to have to sacrifice now as I follow Jesus. And so the question is, do I have to sacrifice what makes me happy to be a Christian? Do I have to uh, give up on all of those things that I enjoy doing and commit to some uh, vow of holiness, following moral guidelines? And I think uh, tonight I'm really talking to two groups of people The first is that you're either new to Christianity or this may very well be your first time visiting here. If it is a very special welcome to you. Um, But either way, uh, if you fit into this group, you're not convinced that uh, the path of obedience while following Christ is all that joyful or happy. It probably seems more like Christianity is actually going to take away from the joy in your life and restrict you. Um, and you have this idea of the happiness and the joy that you want to follow or that you've already experienced, and really Christianity is going to oppress that in your life. And the second uh, group of people that I think I'm, I'm going to be talking to tonight is that you've actually been in church a while, potentially even your whole life, but there is really no sense of joy in your walk with Christ. If someone came to you and asked you, Hey, why is following Christ the most joyful thing in your life? It would be really difficult for you to answer that question. But I'm going to start by asserting that I believe the only true sustainable joy that we can actually have is in glad obedience to Christ. Now, those two words there, glad and obedience, tend to seem contradictory, don't they? We don't usually put those two things together. But this is the real crux of the question. Do I have to sacrifice what makes me happy to be a Christian? I think what we're really saying is, I like doing whatever I want, whenever I want, and I don't want anyone to take that privilege away from me. I don't want anyone to oppress my right to choose to do whatever I want, whenever I want. We want complete autonomy, whereas Christianity is going to take away that freedom in our lives. And that is why we're either resistant to Christianity, or we say we're following Christ, but really we uh, give him a little portion and we hold on to a bigger portion, the portion that means we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. But if we indeed believe uh, in a creator well, wouldn't you say that true happiness or joy would be doing what you were purposed to do? Now, to illustrate that, I can draw back to a childhood hero of mine, also by the same name, Thomas the Tank Engine. And if you think of Thomas the Tank Engine and you ask yourself, where was Thomas the Tank Engine most free? Was it if Thomas the Tank Engine could get off the tracks into the open countryside and roam around as he pleases? 
Or is Thomas the Tank Engine most free on those restrictive, oppressive railway tracks where he can only go where the tracks direct him? And of course, Thomas the Tank Engine is most free on those train tracks because he is a train and he was purposed to be on train tracks. The minute he gets off train tracks, he can't move. Likewise, we are most free when we are in deep communion with God the Father through Jesus Christ because that is what we were purposed to be. But the problem is that apart from the grace of God, we don't actually know what our purpose is. See, we have a sin problem that actually darkens our heart and it enslaves us to the lies of the world that say that you uh, can be free and your purpose is to try and fill yourselves with everything that the world offers. And the world has this very crafty way of offering sustainability when it really offers an addiction to something that will never sustain you, whether it is uh, partying with your friends, whether it is pornography, whether it is trying to find fulfillment in your work. These things can never sustain true joy. And for this reason, they will always leave you dissatisfied. Now, it may be helpful to look at uh, what happiness is, and I looked this up through the week, and happiness is defined as a state of well-being that encompasses living a good life with a sense of purpose and deep satisfaction. Uh, the latest research on Gen Zs, which Gen Zs are those aged anywhere from about five years old now to about 23 or 24 years old. So this is the generation that in another 10, 15 years' time uh, is going to um, be filled in the workplace and our universities. They're the up-and-coming generation. And there was uh, a very extensive um, bit of research done on Gen Zs. And it showed that more than half of them define happiness as financial success. So happiness uh, means having purpose from uh, definition. But the problem is that for most of society, your purpose is to be successful, and the measure of success is either financial wealth or popularity. So then your, your happiness is directly correlated to the amount of money you have, the titles you're given or popularity, the amount of likes on Facebook or Instagram. And so our happiness is dependent upon whether or not we're successful according to these worldly standards. And this makes the pursuit of happiness an exhausting and unsustainable task. And so uh, about now, you're probably thinking, well, I, th I think I know where he's going with this. He's going to say something like, well, uh, happiness you know, in the world is fleeting, but you've got to come to Jesus because he's a source of joy and it's all going to go well for you. I bet most of us have heard that before, that contrast between worldly happiness and Jesus as the source of joy. But if we have indeed heard that, and if we would say that we are following Jesus... Well, can we truly say that the path of glad obedience to Christ is the most joyful thing we do by far? Can we say that I don't have financial wealth? I don't have likes on Facebook. I haven't traveled the world. But I have a deep, profound joy because Jesus is my treasure and I do not need anything else. Or if you don't believe that Jesus is the only sustainable joy, again, maybe you're visiting tonight, I'd ask you to just 
hang with me, but also I would ask you to examine your own understanding of where you find your joy and whether that is indeed sustainable. Because I don't buy for a second what more than half of our young adults believe today. I don't believe that we need any of uh, what the world believes to be the marks of success, to have a deep sense of purpose and satisfaction. I don't buy that at all. But this, of course, requires something deep within us to actually change. See, we need the eyes of our hearts illuminated to the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ who offers complete sustainability. He says that whoever comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. And Jesus is speaking metaphorically, of course, saying that whoever actually comes to me will never hunger or thirst for affirmation, for acceptance from others, for fulfillment. If you truly come to me, you will be filled So I said before that glad obedience to Christ is the only true sustainable joy. And I believe that this means truly knowing Christ, not just knowing of him, not knowing him because you live vicariously through your pastor or your small group leader. I mean a deep, intimate, passionate knowledge which makes the path of obedience one that is full of joy. And this is what the Apostle Paul is praying for with the Ephesians in chapter 1, which we're going to go through, as he asked the spirit of wisdom and revelation would make God known to them, having the, the eyes of their hearts enlightened, and that they would know the hope to which they've been called, the riches of the glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. But before I get into that, I need to talk about the Apostle Paul for a bit, because he is someone who exemplifies this idea of being in glad obedience and being completely free as he follows Christ. This is Paul who was given countless beatings. He was sentenced to 39 lashes, which was basically as close as you could get to a death sentence without them actually giving you the death sentence. He was given that five times. He was beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked three times, just to to name a few things. And as as he's going through all of this, he's telling people to rejoice always, rejoice in the Lord. He's praying that believers would know the width, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ. When he's locked up in prison, he's singing hymns to the Lord. He's converting guards. For Paul to live is Christ. Everything I do is in joyful obedience to my Savior. So I think if you ask Paul, do I have to sacrifice the things that make me happy to be a follower of Christ? I think he would say, you're asking the wrong question. Well, that question doesn't make sense to me. Because to sacrifice something implies that the thing you are sacrificing is actually of value to you, even in light to the thing that you're sacrificing for. may sound a bit confusing to um, demonstrate this. If you imagine uh, you have a car, and I, I don't know anything about cars, but the rev heads will get me, and those who are more like me, just you can imagine like an average car, and you have uh, a friend, and they're a really good friend of yours, and they have a really dodgy car. Like, you're, you're lucky to get it started. And because you, you value this friendship a lot, the, the friend asks if you can trade cars. And so because you value that friendship, 
you end up sacrificing your car and giving it to your friend. So that seems like a sacrifice to you. Whereas if you imagine you've still got that average car, but, but this person, and again, the, the rev heads will be able to imagine some incredible car. If you're like me, just imagine like a jet plane or something that just seems incredible compared to a car. And for some reason, this friend wants to trade their just exceptional car for your average car. Do you think that you would look at giving up your average car as a sacrifice anymore? Because you look at it in light of the value of what you are actually receiving. So this is the reason why I think the Apostle Paul would say there's no sacrifice. Because in comparison to the riches of Christ Jesus that he had experienced, nothing is of significant value in comparison to Christ. This is why in Philippians 3, he says, Everything I once counted as gain, I consider it rubbish now compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. In Acts 20, verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul places zero value on his life in comparison to Christ. David Livingstone, who was a 19th century missionary to Africa, once gave a speech to Cambridge students towards the end of his missionary career. I think this dude had malaria like 30 times or something like that. And he he said, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. And he says, Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Now, please don't hear me saying, uh, come to Christ, be full of joy and everything will go well for you. Jesus is very clear in the Gospels about the cost of discipleship. When people come to him, he says, foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head tonight. He says, this is, this is hard work. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, Jesus tells him to, to sell everything he has. And of course, the, the rich young ruler goes away sad. And Jesus doesn't follow after him, begging him to come follow him, he just turns to his disciples and says, hey, it's, it's easier uh, for the camel to walk through the eye of a needle than it is for, for a rich person to enter heaven. But the reason I'm saying uh, that this isn't a sacrifice and that glad obedience in following Christ is the only sustainable joy is because the cost of following Christ is incomparable to the utter joy of being with him. So this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians to know. And so in verses 17 to 18 of chapter 1, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now Paul is praying this to believers. So this is to those who know God, but he's praying that they would know him in such an intimate way that they would have their hearts illuminated even more to the wondrous majesty of Christ. He prays that God would give them this spirit so that they could know him. 
know him in a, in a really intimate way. See, we think we have to sacrifice what makes us happy because we hold the things that make us happy of way more value than we think God is. But we do that because we don't know God. But God didn't choose to leave us with this distant understanding of some faraway God. He has chosen to reveal himself in the most intimate relational way by sending his son, Jesus Christ, whom has made God known to the entire world by actually becoming one of us. John says in the opening of his gospel that Jesus is the true light which gives light to everyone. I think we read that and we kind of picture it as we're in this uh, dimly lit room and so we can sort of see a few things. Then Jesus comes in and, and like adjusts the dimmer so that it's more clear and now we can see some things in here. But that's, that's not what it's like at all. For Christ to shine his light in your life is like you being in the middle of a deep, dark forest, kilometers away from any light in the middle of the night so that you can't even see uh, your hand two inches in front of your eyes. And then later on, the first light from the sun appears and it illuminates the trees around you, the hillside, the beautiful sunrise uh, glistening off the clouds, giving this beautiful pink sky and you are captivated by it because you haven't seen anything and so likewise the light of Christ captivates us by his wonder as if we were blind but now we see and the word Paul uses for enlighten in this passage is from the exact same word that John uses when he says Christ came as the true light meaning that as Christ came to bring light to a world of darkness, we need that same light again and again to open the eyes of our heart to more of the glory of God. See, the problem is that we think uh, what makes us happy in the world actually perpetuates darkness. I used to find uh, my joy and fulfillment in uh, partying and getting drunk or getting high. And um, at the time I was doing that, I truly thought that I was filled with joy. I would have said I was having a blast at that time. But what it started was this never-ending need to have the same amount of fun or to get to the same level that I did last time. And of course, because my joy and fulfillment were found in partying or getting drunk, I, I had to be doing this for my sense of purpose which made this completely unsustainable. And so some of you uh, can relate to that. Others of you may find your joy and happiness solely in your work. So your identity is actually in getting that promotion or being able to call yourself whatever it is you want to call yourself in your profession. And of course, we should have a sense of joy in our work. But if your identity is in who you are at work, well, what happens when that gets taken away from you? Because inevitably it will. Or maybe your fulfillment is in making money or finding that boyfriend or girlfriend finally being able to settle down. The problem with all of these things, when you're using that as your only source of light, is that it actually perpetuates a dependence from you upon that thing 
which will never actually be able to fulfill the real need deep within you. And that is why it actually perpetuates darkness, because it leaves you with this growing hunger for something that can never satisfy that hunger. But Paul says that the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes of your heart. So as you approach the glory and majesty of Christ, your heart becomes enlightened to more of his glory. I mean, this is he who stretched out the heavens and breathed life into existence. Psalm 19 one says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. But if you picture the most glorious sunset you have ever seen, the glory of God uh, compared to that, that, sun, that sunrise or sunset is but a tiny appetizer compared to the complete glory of God in his fullness. And so what is the result of the eyes of our hearts being enlightened? Well, I think from verses 18 to 23, as we go through Ephesians 1, Paul gives three distinctives that he wants the people to have as a result of this. This is the first distinctive. In verse 18, he prays that you would know the hope to which he has called you. See, the result as we are confronted and saturated with the glory of God, having our hearts enlightened, is that we actually know the hope to which he has called us. So what is this hope? Well, in Romans 8, Paul actually talks about this. And as he describes this hope, he describes it as our adoption. And what actually happens with adoption is that you receive a brand new identity. I don't know if you've ever seen an adoption process or maybe you've gone through it yourself. A a number of months ago, I was watching an adoption um, uh, hearing in in court. And it was an incredibly emotional uh, time. This, This young family hadn't been able to conceive biologically and so they had been on this adoption path for a while and they finally had the day Uh, where they've been building a relationship with this prospective adoptee and uh, they're in court and this is going to be the day and uh, the judge uh, looks at them and they're sitting there and he says, do you understand that upon adopting this child, they will become your lawful child, the same as if they were your natural born child with all the rights, duties and responsibilities of the parent-child relationship? And so uh, then you see as as the parents are beginning to hold their um, soon-to-be adopted child, the judge says, the adopting parents and child are now parents and child under the law with all of the rights, duties, and responsibilities. Then he smacks down the gavel and there's this big cheer. To know the hope to which you have been called is to know that you are no longer an orphan left on the streets to feed from everything culture tries to feed you, but you have a loving father who has redeemed you and now calls you his child. And so I wonder what your hope is in. Is it getting the job you really want that you think will provide fulfillment in your life? Is it in finally finding a partner that you can settle down with? Maybe it's simply hoping to lead a good and comfortable life. But the problem with placing your hope in these things is that they are all temporary and inconsistent. 
Whereas Jesus promises a hope in himself that is unbreakable. The beautiful thing about God's promises is that they are not ultimately dependent upon us. They are dependent upon our Father who is faithful even when we are faithless. Knowing the hope to which you are called means knowing that God has called you out of slavery to sin and he has called you to himself as a child. The second distinctive uh, is in the last little section of verse 18 where Paul prays that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so I mentioned before about the way sacrifice only really seems like a sacrifice if we value the thing we're sacrificing. But to understand the riches of his glorious inheritance shatters the value of anything we cling to for value in this world. Jesus gives uh, this story of what the result is when someone actually knows the surpassing worth of the kingdom of God. And he explains this in the parable of the man and the hidden treasure in Matthew 13 in verse 44. And he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I don't know if you noticed that. It says, in his joy, he sells everything. So does it seem like a sacrifice to that man who found the treasure of the kingdom of God when he sold everything? In his joy, in the overflow of the love of God, we give up everything we have to follow Christ. And it is the most joyful thing we could ever do. And so while we have received adoption as children of God, this inheritance is something ultimately we are yet to fully receive. It is stored up for us in heaven. And so if your inheritance, your home, is in heaven, well, why would you want to solely find your happiness in things on this earth? This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. For me to say that I have my hope in heaven, but I live trying to find fulfillment by the things of the world or by getting that promotion at work, trying to rack up the likes on Facebook or get cash in the bank, it would be like me planning for this big holiday to the US and I've been working at this for ages and I'm so excited and the whole time while I'm working up for this, I'm storing up Monopoly money in my wallet. And so I'm going to be very disappointed when I try and go there. So if you are clinging to these things that you find your identity in that are not Christ, then I urge you not to try and remove these things from your life first, but to turn to Jesus Christ so that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to how glorious the inheritance is that God has given his children. The third and final distinctive in uh, verses 19 to 23, he prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So when Paul finishes off this prayer, he prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of the Father's power and how it is the same power working within us that raised Christ from the dead and that God has put all things under the feet of Jesus 
and has given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The problem with the mentality of thinking you have to sacrifice what makes you happy is that it's like living out of a half-empty cup, trying to get filled by everything in the world. But because you have so little in your cup, you cling to that and everything seems like a sacrifice. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus took not only that measly cup of sin that you're holding, that separated you from the Father, but he took the cup of wrath from the Father that was poured out upon him. And now he calls you to repent of that life, clinging to that measly cup in ignorance of God. And he offers you a full cup because he is the fullness of all things who fills all in all. So in the path of glad obedience to Christ, you walk around with a full cup and you live out of the overflow of the love of God. This is the beauty of the fullness of God and the immeasurable greatness of it as we are filled with it. When, when Jesus prays in John 17, uh, which is just before he goes to the cross, he asks the Father that the love which you have loved me may be in them as I in them. The love of the Father is really the only true love because it is the only self-giving love and does not require anything in response to be complete. I don't know if you remember that, that famous line from Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise, um, I think it's Renee Zellweger, whoever, whoever it is in the movie, and he's in front of her and he says, you complete me. And it's, this, it's always this romantic scene. I don't think that's love at all. He needs her to feel complete. Obviously, he wants to feel complete. It's in his best interest to feel complete. So he needs her to find fulfillment. And that is selfish love. See, God creates not in order to fill a void. He doesn't look at us and say, you complete me. He's completely full. He creates out of the overflow of his love. And of course, the greatest picture of this love is the Father giving the Son on the cross. Not because he needed to, because if God needed to, then he would be doing it out of obligation. But the beautiful thing is that he gave because he wanted to. He chose to give his one and only Son so that by his death, Sin would be paid for in full and then the Father could restore the relationship that he always intended to have with his children. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened means being confronted by this love, by Jesus Christ and being so full from the fullness of God that we live our lives in glad obedience to Christ. Let me pray. Father, I do, uh, Lord, I pray that this uh, would not just be another night where we come and we tick Sunday night church off the list and then we move on. Lord, I pray that this would be a time where we are so saturated with your love, where, where we are just so confronted by the, the overflowing, overwhelming love of God. 
Lord, we long to know you and to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to more of you. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, would you minister to our hearts? Would you give us a greater picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior? And Lord, I pray particularly for those who may still feel like they need to sacrifice things in this world and that they are clinging to that cup, that cup that is half empty. Oh Lord, would you show them your glory? Would you show them your love afresh upon them so that they would see the cup that you offer to them that is completely full, that those who come to you would never hunger, never thirst, for you are the fullness of love and in your presence is the fullness of joy. So Lord, I pray that you would seal this message upon our hearts. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.